The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege of being able to study your word this morning, be able to talk about this specific issue, Lord. Um, Lord, it's a tricky issue. It's one that a lot of people have a lot of ideas and a lot of opinions about. And um, we ask, Lord, that you would just reach through our own opinions, our own experiences, our own culture. And um, Lord, show us your heart for your people. Lord, how we as your church can best um, approach the issue of race and racial justice and racial harmony and, and uh, racial tension. And I pray, God, that you would give us humility, Lord, in this. And I pray, God, that maybe this would be something that having considered it tonight, you would give us opportunity to... Uh, to be able to reach out, Lord, in, in some way or another to those who aren't like us and, and be able to have a grace-filled understanding and, and approach to it as well. And Lord, we, we ask all these things um, because we know we serve a God who's done just that. That Lord, you came to the oppressed, the maligned, um, the off-put, the downtrodden, the slave, if you will, Lord, and, and you have set us free. You have shown us grace. You have humbled yourself. You've become like us. You've become relatable to us, and we're thankful for that, Lord. So God, may you just be present in everything that's done here tonight. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've been sitting on that video clip for a long time, just like I'm showing it eventually. I don't care if we have to just make it up, because that is a great, great video clip. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever lived in the South before? Oh, more than I thought. Awesome. Okay, when you lived in the South, did you ever have the privilege of visiting a good old Southern black gospel church before? A couple? If you did, my guess is that would be one of the greater and more memorable experiences of your life. It certainly was mine. We're going to teach in the dark so you don't judge anyone by skin color as we... Uh, as we teach. Um, you know that there can be, uh, we're going to be talking about prejudices. We're going to be talking about preconceived ideas and thoughts and racism and all that kind of stuff. And one of them that actually exists in a lot of different areas of Christianity, I I'm in there, man. I don't know. Demons in the mic. Um, one of the things that can exist out there in the world around us right now within Christianity is that no, no one's preaching the gospel in some of these black Pentecostal uber excited. They're just getting all up in emotion and they're not talking about doctrine and they're not talking about theology and they're not talking about any of that kind of stuff. But that may be in a different, completely different cultural context from the way that you might hear me or others more regularly present the gospel. Um, but that's the gospel. That is the absolute clear and maybe easier to understand presentation of the gospel than what I probably give you on the average Sunday morning. Um, so what we want to do is take an opportunity tonight to think about racism, about prejudice, and uh, it doesn't just have to be a black-white issue, though historically in our culture and in our nation, that's the one that's been the, the most predominant. Um, but in our actual valley right here, that's probably the least common form of racism that we might run across. You, you might deal with issues regarding um, whites and Hispanics, maybe, for example. Um, we got shootings that went on lately, and so there's a lot of issues and preconceived notions that some people have, that all the Hispanic teens are in gangs and some of those kind of things. That can happen. Um, it might be issues with, you know, we got 
terrorism lately and all this kind of stuff? I mean, be honest with your heart for a second. If you sit down on an airplane and an Arab comes in and sits down next to you, what do you think? Honestly, what do you think? So we want to take an opportunity to just see what the Bible says about these things, to think about what the culture has to say about some of these things, and, and then how should we, knowing what the scripture does say about some of this stuff, how should we look at issues of race in general? Things to come, things in the past, if another Ferguson happens, or any of those kind of things. How should we, even sitting in our living room watching the news as these things come down, how should we look and think as Christians? Because this is a worldview series that we're doing. How do we think about these things? And again, uh, racial issues are, uh, all of these have been, um, kind of hot button issue, easy to step on toes. And so my prayer is that all of us will just take a minute to, to humbly consider, does this apply to me? Is this the truth? Am I holding on to some sort of truth or am I holding on to preconceived notions that might not be biblically accurate or healthy? And let's see what the Lord would have us to see. Um, what we're going to talk about tonight, first of all, is the reality of racism. Racism is absolutely alive and well. Now, it can take um, really toned down, seemingly insignificant, maybe, maybe uh, manifest itself in ways that we would never even think about. Maybe not prejudicial, like we're going to judge someone because of it, but maybe preconceived notions that aren't totally accurate with regards to race. For example, if I say Adam and Eve, in your mind right now, what color are they? White? Yeah, most of us would think that way because we were raised in a particular cultural climate. Not that that was intended to be wicked or evil, but that's, for most of us, the cultural climate that we were raised in. And so we tend to think that Adam and Eve were white and other races kind of came from all of those things, though there is absolutely no biblical evidence whatsoever. They could have been purple. Like, we don't know. We have no idea. And so those kinds of preconceived notions can come out in certain ways. Again, that might not be one where you're actually thinking judgmentally towards someone, but it is a symptom and shows you how you can have little underlying thoughts in your own mind. Uh, Megan Kelly made news last Christmas. Do you guys remember this? Megan Kelly, Fox News. Um, when she made a well, I'm going to actually, I found a video that actually, I, I think he's better at it than me. So it's a really short one where they're going to show what Megyn Kelly said about Jesus as they were approaching an issue where a group was trying to change the image of Santa Claus to make Santa Claus black, to make Santa Claus African American. And in that conversation, she made a comment about Jesus and race. And so you're going to see that. And then you're going to see Matt Chandler, who you guys saw recently. Remember Jesus Wants the Rose, that whole thing? Um, he's the president of the Acts 29 Network, which we are a part of. Um, he's going to refute that as they were going through an Advent series just last Christmas when that happened. So uh, can you play that clip real quick? Her name is Aisha Harris. I've given her her, you know, her due on where she was going with it. But just because it makes you feel uncomfortable doesn't mean it has to change. You know, I mean, yeah. Jesus was a white man too, but you, you know, it's like we have, he was a historical figure. I mean, that's a verifiable fact, as is Santa. I just want right. the kids watching to know that. Yes. But my point is, how do you just revise it, you know, in the middle of the legacy of the story and change Santa from white to black? Yeah. All right, and then from there, the second thing I want you to notice, and, and I want to point this out, I, I don't tend to get involved in things like this, but I was just so 
horrified that I felt like I need to uh, this week as I prepped. Um, what we read in this text is that uh, David and Mary are from Galilee and Joseph in particular in the line of David. And so we know he's not just Jewish, but he's super Jewish. So the reason I'm saying that is because, uh, God bless her, earlier this week, Megan uh, Kelly on Fox News said that Jesus was white. Now, I don't know if you saw this. I mean, it's been all over the place, but she was talking about how Santa is white, and, and it's a historic fact that Santa and Jesus are just white. We just have to deal with that. And I just was so stupefied <laughs> that someone could say that. Now, I've spoken publicly enough to know that there are times you say things that you wish you could have back. I only hope and pray that Megan's like, golly, mulligan, please. (laughs) Because finding a white dude in Galilee in the first century would be like finding Bigfoot riding a unicorn across (laughs) a rainbow. There's not going to be one there, all right? It's not going to happen. All right, so we know that Jesus is not a white guy. Not blonde, he doesn't have his fair heather, or, you know, fair hair feather. Gah! All right, that's not who he is. He is distinctively Jewish, and what we do know from the Bible is he's not all that good to look at. I mean, even the prophet Isaiah said there was nothing about his physical form that made us think that he might be God in the flesh. So that's for free. It doesn't even have a point. I just felt like I had to address it after Megan. I was just like, I can't believe someone said that. Now, I can, like, street level, I mean, okay, I mean, you hear stuff on the street all the time. It's just absurd. But someone has a show, Jesus was white, historic fact. Like, what book? (laughs) Whitey Whiterton by the white guys. I mean, that's the only book that that could ever be said in. All right, so Jesus is not a white guy because he's from Galilee. His parents are from Galilee, and they're of the line of David. Have you guys read Whitey Whiterton by McWhite Guy? That's a really, don't read that book. Yeah, so, uh, so, so you can have issues like that where people make comments like that that seem to put a cultural slant. So in no way do I mean to imply that she's racist or anyone that thinks, oh, Adam and Eve, they're probably white. Because what I'm trying to point out is that we do have cultural biases that do affect the way we think because of where we're raised. That's just reality, okay? So... There are other issues, though, that are very prevalent in the culture that we live in, in the day that we live in today, that are much more malignant, much more um, aggressive, much more wicked, I'll say. Um, You don't have to watch a whole lot of news to realize that we do not live in a post-racial society. We used to think we did. Once Bill Cosby was on TV, Obama got elected, people tried to say, see, see, and it's just not true. I mean, just recently we've had Ferguson, we've had Baltimore. Um, There are issues like that that come up all the time. The bombing in South Carolina or the shooting, excuse me, in the church. Um, And these are the ones that make the news. I mean, there are incidents like this that happen all the time from both directions. Um, when we were in Miami for the Acts 29 National Conference, I got a chance to to meet and talk with Eric Mason. He's the pastor of a um, forgot the name of the church, but it's in um, Philadelphia. And I was talking with him about Ferguson and about all the things that were going on. And I'm like, so what are you doing up there? And he was like, man, and this dude, Google that guy. You want to watch some killer doctrine preached with some of that kind of flair from earlier? Google Eric Mason. He's phenomenal. He was like, man, 
if Ferguson happened in Philly, people would die all over the place. Philly already has this kind of underdog mentality. There's a reason that Rocky is so popular in the city of Philadelphia that they put statues up, and it doesn't matter. White, black, Irish, doesn't matter who you are, everyone loves Rocky because the city of Philadelphia already has an inferiority complex. They're stuck between um, New York City and Boston, and they sort of feel like the stepchild that's neglected. And so there's already this, this tension amongst the citizens of Philadelphia in general that feels like they're overlooked and pushed aside. He said, now you pastor where I pastor, and you go into the neighborhoods where I am, and we're like, we can't allow it to get to this point. So we're already and have been for a while doing summits, if you will, where we bring black people from our church and police officers from the neighborhood and bring them together and try to get them to know each other, to hear from one another, to understand one another. Because if Ferguson goes down in Philly, the National Guard will be here forever. It's just the reality of the world he lives in now, before the incident takes place. Um, so this stuff happens all the time. Now, I grew up in the South. I lived in North Carolina until um, I was 23, 24 years old. And um, growing up there, I saw it all the time when I was there. I had a friend in high school whose dad was in the KKK. And we were over in the neighborhood or whatever playing basketball one time. Went into his house to get some Gatorade or something. And literally, we're like, there's the robe. And he had like the purple one. So you guys know, like KKK, they're all white, but if you've got a colored one, you're up the rankings. That's, that's all I know, right? He had a purple one. I think that's probably high. Um, so we saw that. Um, I saw uh, uh, campus security at North Carolina State when I was a student there. One of my best friends there was a guy named Jonathan Wilkin. And uh, Jonathan, African-American, just a great kid, engineering student, was a good friend. One of the funniest, nicest guys you'd ever meet in your life. He, he actually works for a church now, in fact, in Durham, North Carolina. And so uh, there were several times, uh, well, two specifically that I can think of, where we might be in the library one night studying really late and then make our way from the library over to where we park our car, which when we were younger in that, the, um, uh, you know, you, you get to park closer as you get up, you know, seniors park closer than everybody else. So our parking lot was like miles away. And so you're walking literally a, a mile or two to get to your car from the library. And at night, late at night, walking across campus, two different times, campus security came up and approached us on campus, stopped us, asked him to see his student ID. Never asked me. Never even pretended. To, never even thought about, didn't even look at me, didn't even talk about me. Flashlight in Jonathan's face the whole time. That happened at least twice that I can remember. Um, so so I, I've experienced it from some of those kind of things. But, uh, gosh, it was even more than that. I grew up in an area where I can remember people in my own family who would make comments. I, people in school, people in church who would make comments or tell jokes tell black jokes, or they weren't called black jokes, it was N-word jokes, is what they would refer to him as, and then turn around and cheer Michael Jordan when he played for North Carolina. Like, I saw this gross hypocrisy that would take place, where you wanted to share in the victories that Michael Jordan brought you, but then you wanted to isolate yourself from the other members of black society anywhere around there. Um, it was a pretty gnarly environment from time to time with some of that. I saw, this was just part of my life growing up, I saw it all the time. Um, so much so that um, I probably should have asked my wife if I could... Uh, uh, tell this story, but um, when she moved to North Carolina, and we were literally driving her stuff out there, she lived here, moved to North Carolina to, to go to school, her uncle lived there, and she met me and knew there's nobody like that in Oregon, so she was going to move to North Carolina before that one gets away, so um, 
That's how it went, right? So anyway, um, so as, as we're driving across, she makes this comment to me. She's like, I, I don't know how I'm going to handle the racism that I'm going to see there. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? And she had it in her mind just based on, you know, stories of history and assumptions that you might make on the South, which is another form of prejudice that in the South, they're just like chasing black people down the street with bats. Like that's just a normal occurrence, that sort of racism. What stunned her was to get to North Carolina and see racism in the other direction, to be treated poorly by African-Americans because she was white, which happens. That happens as well. Um, but, but racism is not just a South thing. I have a picture. I took this from my car literally like two weeks ago. Can you put that picture up? So, so that was here in good old Medford, and um, that's just garbage. Now, I, I am fully aware that there is a lot of debate that goes on in other places in the country, and you might, those of you especially who lived at some different time in the South, you, you might have a different opinion than me on this, and you're allowed to be wrong, but the idea that, hey, this flag is not a symbol for racism in our country. It's a symbol for our culture. Well, you live in Oregon. You don't need that. But it, either way, the issues of flag being on the pole in South Carolina, some of those kinds of things, there are people that they make the argument, this is not an issue of racism. This is just our heritage. Well, I have two uncles that are part of an organization. They live in Florida. I hope they don't hear this, or I hope they do, actually. Um, they live in Florida, and they're part of an organization called Sons of Confederate Veterans. And the Sons of Confederate Veterans is sort of a historical society that seeks to pervert, uh, uh, I almost said perverse, and that would be better, but preserve different elements of pre-Confederate, they're all people who their relatives actually fought for the South in the Civil War, and they'll do like repair graves and cemeteries and do different things like that. And I went to their website today. And, and there's a thing you can click about Sons of the Confederate Veterans, and here's what it says about them. It says this, the citizen soldiers who fought for the Confederacy personified the absolute best qualities of America. The preservation of liberty and freedom was the motivating factor. The preservation of liberty and freedom was the motivating factor in the South's decision to fight in the American Revolution, the second American Revolution, they call it actually. The tenacity with which the Confederate soldiers fought, underscored their belief in the rights they were guaranteed by the Constitution. Think about that. The rights they were guaranteed for freedom, that's what they were fighting for. That's the best part of America. And these attributes are the underpinning of our de democratic society and represent the foundation upon which this nation was built. Today, the Sons of Confederate Veterans is preserving the history and legacy of these heroes, so future generations can understand the motives that animated the Southern cause. Okay, so historical society or not, you're making a claim on your website that this, in this battle, these men fought for what absolutely symbolized the best part of American history, rights, freedom, independence. And yet, and yet, it was also to preserve, and I know there's a lot of history being rewritten now to say that, it, no, it really wasn't about slavery. They'll teach that in the South a lot. They actually do. It wasn't so much about slavery. It was just about the fact that the states should have the right to be able to make these decisions, not the federal government as a whole. But I assure you it was about slavery. Because if the, Confeder the Confederate was an agrarian society, it was, it was a, a, um, 
Um, uh, the states were all, they all made their money based on farming and ranching and all of these kinds of things. If they lost their slaves, their profits were destroyed. In the north, there were factories. It was much more industrial, much more commercial. Didn't have the same kind of things going on. So at the very least, money behind slavery, whether it was we hate black people, it was definitely we make money off black people. And so racism was a massive, massive, massive part of what that war was. And so if we are part of an organization today flying a flag like this and saying this represents the greatest thing, the greatest part of America, this represents our liberty and our independence, then you instantly have a major problem when the war, had they won, would have guaranteed that a giant segment of that society would have had no independence, no freedom, no rights. So, so by default, it has to represent that. It has to. And a whole other rabbit trail that I shouldn't chase at all. Doesn't the scripture tell us, though, that the gospel tells us that we have rights and we have liberties, but we willingly lay them down for the benefit of others so that it not be a stumbling block for others? So, so if I'm a Christian believer in the South, and I do believe in the heritage of this flag, if I am, and I don't, but if I am, then wouldn't I willingly go, yeah, we, let's just take it down. That's a real hard thing for a big segment of people. Brothers and sisters in Christ struggle because of that. They have to week in and week out look at this constant reminder on top of this, of, of this uh, building that there were people who gave their lives trying to make sure they didn't have the opportunity to have the freedoms that they have today in a culture where they still experience racism. So as a believer, wouldn't I want to go, yeah, I, let's lay that flag down. It's just a, it's just a flag. And an ugly one at that. Let's just lay that flag down. That's a whole nother rabbit trail. But, but here's what I do want to say. Go to this next slide, the water fountains. This, this right here was not long ago. Do any of you remember this? Some of you remember this in your lifetime seeing this, right? So, so this was not that long ago. Um, this was actually taken in North Carolina um, in the city I grew up in, in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm sorry I keep messing with this, guys. It's just driving me crazy. But um, that was in Asheville, North Carolina at the local high school, Asheville High, where my, my dad went to school. Um, he would have been in school about a year and a half after this was taken, and those signs were still there when he started school. In fact, I think they took him down while he was still there. So it's not that long ago. We do not live in a post-racial society. And, and here's the thing. I'm talking to you about the South here lately, but this is not a Southern problem. This is not a Oregon problem. It's not a Southern Oregon problem. It's not a United States problem. This is a humanity problem. It's not a black and white problem. It's not a rich and poor problem. It is a human problem. Um, in Turkey, 1915, one million Armenians were killed. In Germany in the 40s, six million Jews. The Gulag labor camps in Russia killed 14 million uh, in the 90s, the Rwandan uh, Tutsis were murdered, one million of them uh, by higher estimates. Japanese slaughter of six million Indo-Chinese, Koreans, Chinese, and others. Um, there has been a history. Human history is full of these sorts of examples. Maybe not always be black and white, but of one group of people, one people group, trying to take out, eliminate prejudicially treating, looking down on, or just straight up genocide other people groups historically. This has gone on for a long time, and, and this sort of racism does still exist today. Now, it's not just an interpersonal thing. 
Because I remember when I was growing up in the South, um, one of the things that my dad would say when he would see people commenting about stuff, and in fact, I remember this. I remember when, um, do you guys remember, we're not supposed to talk about Bill Cosby anymore, I know, but, but you remember when the Cosby show was on that one, there was one episode that was really famous because it aired on Martin Luther King Day. And in that, when they played excerpts from Martin Luther King's famous speech, and there was, they, were, they were telling stories how Bill Cosby's dad was at the march, and he's telling the kids about what it was like to be there with Martin Luther King, and all this was going on. Now, my family loved the Cosby show, but that episode bothered my dad, bothered my dad. And I can remember my dad talking, I still remember this, him saying, I don't know why we have to always talk about this kind of stuff. That kind of racism just doesn't even exist anymore. It got taken care of. Why do we have to keep dealing with this? That just makes things worse. That was what he was saying. And what he meant by that is this. Of course we have personal, like, people who carry personal racial issues. Of course we've always had that. Um, what he meant was systematic injustice. What he meant was our country is now a free country, and anyone can go to school, anyone can get a job, anyone can ascend the ranks, anyone can do any of this stuff. The systematic injustices that existed in the day that necessitated Martin Luther King Jr. doing something like that don't exist anymore. We've fixed our nation. And that's not true. That's not true either. Um, I, now, let me define that. Um, systematic injustice would be a system that excludes or marginalizes people on the basis of race, um, even though the individuals behind such a system may not intentionally be trying to do it at all. I'll give you an example I read about just today that, that a, a community in Virginia just recently corrected that was great. So in this particular community, it was just a normal city. You had, you had your slums, you had your, your, your poor area, you had your more affluent areas, you had your middle class. It just, like, it'd be like Medford. This is in Virginia. Well, they were putting their town charter together and revisiting. Their, they were going to add like two people into the city council, I think, to better represent everyone in the city. And so when they were looking about how do we do this, how do we best make sure that we represent everyone there, what they decided to do is just say, look, we just all vote. And whoever we vote, that's who we are. That way, each person that's up there represents everyone. We don't want to break the city into little segments, and then that guy represents this group, and that guy represents this group. And they were trying to do a good thing. They were saying, we want every representative in our city to stand for and represent every person in our city. That's a, that would be a good thing. The problem was the African-American population in the absolute poorest part of the city was only 30% of the entire city's population. So guess who got elected? All middle to upper class white people. And so what ended up happening, you had a city with all these people that knew nothing of what life was like in these suburbs, in, the, in these particular um, poor housing districts and slums and stuff. They had no idea what it was like to live in that kind of culture. They had no idea. And so in their intent, we want these people to represent everyone. They ended up causing this one segment of people to represent no one. That's a systemic injustice. That is a city in a country where we believe that people have representation that was left completely out. Now, to their credit, they realized this as time went on. They've readjusted all this stuff, and it's a just incredible success story, the way that they've changed those sorts of things. Um, but this actually happens. Robert uh, Linthicum, he wrote a, a book called City of God, City of Satan, and it's one of the... Um, prime books that's out there right now about urban ministry and, and how to minister the gospel in cities. And he told this story. Um, he told a story how he spent a summer doing evangelism in a big city. Didn't name the city that it was at, but, but a big city. 
And in this summer, he's doing evangelism, like child evangelism fellowship or something like that. And there he met a girl named Eva, African-American little girl, and, and met her. She was really poor from a really gnarly background, didn't have a dad, all this kind of stuff. And he met her, he befriended her, he shared the gospel with her, and praise God, Eva gets saved. And he, he brings Eva to this church and shows her this Bible study that she can go to with all these other kids, and, and everything was great. At the end of the summer, though, he goes back to school and he moves on from that. The next year, he got a chance to come back. And so by the time he came back, Eva's now a teenager. And Eva, he finds out, is involved in prostitution. And, and he freaks out. And so he finds her, gets to talk with her, and he's like, Eva, what are you doing? Why would you do this to yourself? Why would you be in such a situation like this? Don't you know who you are? Don't you understand what Christ died for? All this kind of stuff. And, and she said, I, I didn't have any choice, sir. There were some men that told me and a couple other girls in our neighborhood, they, they came to us. They thought we were attractive. They told us we had to do this. And they told us that our family would be beaten if we don't. And he was like, but Eva, listen, this is easy. You're in the church. You're a Christian. All you have to do, trust God, call the police. You have resources available. And she said, actually, it was police officers that came to me and said, you're pretty. You should do this, or we will beat your family. And in that moment, he says in his book, in that moment I realized this is a much bigger issue than I realized. I had been insulated from these kind of problems. I wasn't aware of the kind of things that happen in some of these different areas. And I realized it was much bigger than just salvation and pointer to a Bible study. That what needed to happen, there needed to be systemic reform in different areas of this particular city to save the likes of Eva. And that's the reality for a lot of people today, a lot of people today, um, in our culture and overseas. It happens even in Uganda. There's still incredible um, racism and racial tension and issues that happen in Africa all the time, all the time. So racism is alive and well. It's as strong as it's ever been, I would argue, and that's not debatable. So why? What is it about people that makes someone think like that? What is it about someone that would make someone look at someone else of a different skin color or a different nationality and make them think down upon, put themselves in a higher position, think you're worthless because your skin color is darker than I? That just seems, if you just step back and look at it randomly, it just seems so silly. There was a comedian, Dennis Miller, he's on the news now, but um, he used to be a comedian that you didn't tell your mom you listened to. And... Um, he, he once said something like, I don't understand why you would dislike someone strictly on the basis of race. If you would just take the time to get to know someone, you could find way more valid reasons to hate someone. That's really funny. They just didn't get it. But that's true, though. So it just seems random. Like skin color, that's what we're picking? Why is that? What is it about humans that causes us to do such a thing? Well, the reason that there is racism is really simple, actually. If you're a Christian, you understand this. The reason there's racism is because people are rebelling against God. That's the bottom line. That's what it really boils down to. And, and you can see this, not just in the cultures that we're in right now, but you can see this going all the way back to the very beginning. The roots of racism happen right there in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, what is the sin they're committing? And I, if you've been around us for a long time, you know I go back to this a lot because this is the root, right? So go back to this and think about it. What's the sin Adam and Eve commit? What is the temptation that they bite on when they're in the Garden of Eden? Satan says to them, you can be like God. 
You don't have to live dependent on God anymore. You can have knowledge and wisdom and understanding. You can be like him. You don't have to live dependent. You can be your own. You will be like God. It is a temptation to elevate self. I don't have to be down here. I can elevate myself now, and I don't have to be dependent on God anymore. And listen, the moment any individual begins to elevate self, strife and tension between other individuals instantly is coming. It's coming. Because you're elevating yourself over something. I mean, Adam was already in dominion over the animals, was he not? So who's left? I mean, this is the idea. There's an issue of self raising, and you see it play out in their kids, don't you? Cain and Abel, there becomes tension between them. He thinks he's better than me because of his sacrifices, and God accepts him, and you see this kind of strife, and what's the outcome? Murder right there in the first, the, the first children that are even born into the culture. This is the roots of racism. The issue is there's division, strife, and that kind of animosity among men because man has historically always had the sinful proclivity to elevate self above others. And they'll do it for lots of different reasons. Um, it's not just racism. We could title this a lot of different things. Um, classism, um, racism. I mean, people hate one another over things such as education, religion, I mean, all sorts of different things that we go, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm above you, therefore, and this kind of stuff plays out. This is what it comes from. So the roots of racism is the fact that man is rebelling against God. It's as simple as you can put it. It's, it's not about, well, we were raised in that culture, we just don't know better. That's not it. It's not, well, this is what I was taught, or, or this is the system we were in. This is our culture. No, the, the roots of racism is rebellion against God, plain and simple. So what does the gospel say about this? What does the gospel say about it? Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 14. It says this. I think we have a slide for it. Here we go. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh in the flesh by hands. Now, I'll pause this for just a second. Paul's talking to a church where he's dealing primarily here right now with Gentiles. He's dealing with, with an issue of a form of racism that, that exists between Jewish people and Gentiles. And it was over this issue of circumcision. And so there's this dirty word. When it says here in parentheses, or what do we call those things? I forget. Public schools. What are those? Quotation marks. There we go. Um, these. When it says the uncircumcision... They're talking about Gentiles, meaning the Jewish people would look at the Gentile people and go, oh, he's uncircumcised. Now, that seems weird, really random reason to hate someone, but that's a slur. That's an ethnic slur that he's talking about. It was a denigrating term to speak about non-Jewish people that the Jewish people were using against them. So here's what he's saying. At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. The Jews would call you this name which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our, what's this word? Nice and loud. He himself is our who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of? So think about what he's saying here. I know we just covered this a couple of weeks ago on our Sunday series, but think about what he's saying here. 
you were the outsider. You were the one everyone looked down on. You were, if you will, the black people in a society controlled by white people and racism is dominating the day. That was you. They were saying, calling you inward. They were calling you by these terms. This is who you were. But Christ died for you. And in that sacrifice, his blood not only cleanses you from unrighteousness, not only forgives you of your sin, but brings you in. You're no longer a stranger and a sojourner. You are now part of the family of God. You're not an outsider anymore. You're not different anymore. And the gospel has, and this is the important part, it is our peace Jesus himself is our peace and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That right there, it is unfathomable to me how people in days such as the segregation in our culture could have been fighting to divide black people and white people over racial issues and teach a verse like that. It just blows my mind that it could happen. But... uh, that, that's human nature. There's probably something that we're doing right now that one day our kids will look back on, and maybe it has to do with abortion. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? But what this says is, in Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ has broken down these dividing walls of hostility. So when a Christian is saved, white person, and another Christian is saved, black person, or Jew, or Asian, or whatever the case may be, the dividing walls of hostility that were there, where we would look down noses at one another, where we would call names and slurs, all of those things, the blood of Jesus Christ removes such a wall. It breaks down such a wall. There is no such division for those that are in Christ. He's going to go on to say, we'll see in a minute in Galatians, there's no more Jew or Gentile. That, that division doesn't exist anymore. We now are the family of God. We are one and the same because we're covered by the blood of Christ. So let me, let me break this down for you. Let me give you four things really quickly um, about the gospel that undermines racism, that makes racism impossible. If you are a believer in Christ, covered by the blood of Christ, a follower of the gospel of Jesus, if that's you, it is impossible that you hold on to with any valid reasoning whatsoever issues of racism. So I'll give you four reasons. Number one, the issue of creation, that we were all created in whose image? In God's. We were all created in God's image. All of us. What, whatever color Adam and Eve were at the beginning, we were all created in the image of God. So no matter what someone's skin color is or hair color or any of those kind of things, every human being walking the face of the earth has a certain amount of dignity that has been imposed upon them or given to them by the grace of God simply because they have been created in the image of God. And so when we try to take the image of that person and denigrate it and say that they are of no worth because of their skin color, then that is an attack. Like that can not happen. And, and think about the, the, it's subtle, but it's huge. Think about the difference here. When, when you fill out paperwork for anything, you're, you're putting your kids in school, you're doing a loan, whatever the case is, they ask you all these questions, right? Jeff Hensley, where do you live? Da, 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 da. Um, what is your race? White, Caucasian, Hispanic, whatever the case. So right off the bat, we're separating people into different categories. That's what we're doing. The Bible flips all that stuff around. The Bible starts with a commonality, with a unity. It says you've been made in the likeness and the image of Christ. And so to hold on to the division when the Bible starts right off and says we're all in the image of God, it's sinful. It doesn't hold water. The second, racism is is by definition the exaltation of self. 
For you to be racist, you have to believe that you and your race is elevated above someone else. And that's the very roots of the fall in Genesis 3. It goes against every possible principle of the gospel or any of the teachings from everything, humility, serving one another, the posture of Christ when he came, being the body of Christ and serving others. Matthew 20, uh, you see how the rulers of this earth lord over, but for you it will not be so. If you want to be great, you will be a slave is the word that's used actually. So, so to understand the reality that racism by nature is the elevation of man automatically puts it in trouble with the gospel. Amen? Number three, Christ died to reconcile all people to himself. This text in Ephesians 2 that we just read said that Jesus died that he might reconcile all people to himself. All people to himself. And, and I don't know, if you were listening to Matt Chandler a minute ago, Jesus is not an American white guy, but he's reconciling American white guys to himself, is he not? And are we thankful for that? Amen, we are. So who are we to, be, to enjoy the benefits of such reconciliation and say one other group doesn't? That's foolish. That's foolish. Revelation 5, take a look at this. Speaking of that day when the kingdom of God in its wholeness is, is unified and gathered together before the very throne of God, look what it says. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, they're speaking to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. What people? People from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the gospel tells us that the blood of Christ was poured out so that God might reconcile to himself people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. So look around here. There's not a lot of diversity in the room. There's a little bit in the room, but not a whole lot. This is Southern Oregon. It is what it is, right? But th this does not look like the kingdom of God. This is not what it looks like. The kingdom of God is going to be incredibly diverse. Man, when we were in Israel last year, oh, those of you that were with me, you'll remember this. We went to the upper room. And because of delays, the Pope was there. He ruined everything for all of us. So we had to scatter all over the place and just dodge him in traffic all week. And, and so one day, we go back like midday, and we go to the upper room, and, and we had communion together. And so we were pouring wine in these little, these little wooden cups that they give you, and, and we're in there. And by the grace of God, the groups that were all in there happened to all leave, and we had the whole room to ourselves. And it's this stone, echoey chamber kind of room. And so here we are having communion with one another, just singing hymns. We're on our knees. There's tears flowing. It was beautiful. As we're doing this, the door opens, and the next group come in, comes in, and they're from Africa. They're from Nigeria, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken. And they come in, and they end up sort of standing behind us. And here we are singing. I'm looking over my shoulder, and they're lifting their hands up, and they're singing along. Those that could are. And as our time ended, we sort of slid out of the way to give them room to slide in. And they start going with their worship songs. And it was just the whole room is being filled in different languages, all praising Jesus for the sacrifice of his blood that he used to ransom people from every tribe and every nation. That's more like the kingdom of heaven, except in the kingdom of heaven, we'll have understanding of one another. The division language, linguistically, that exists today will be gone. That's the kingdom of heaven. And so for us to hold on to sinful proclivities, to want to divide from one another now, knowing that that's what we live for, 
I mean, the Bible tells us, live as strangers on the earth now, living not for this city, live as strangers, exiles, as immigrants. And oh man, we could take this into immigration. But live like that now, because that's where we're going to be. That's the city that we're living for. So biblically, we're living for a diverse city, and yet so often fighting, fighting for we want our style and our people and our skin and our culture and our race and excluding those that are different. Whether it's out of absolute hatred or just plain fear or lack of understanding, it happens. I mean, Christian, be honest with yourself for just a minute. Don't raise your hand. You walk into a restaurant, cafeteria, you got your food, it's on your tray. The whole place is full, absolutely full. There's not a place to sit anywhere except one seat over there and one seat over there. And that table right there is all African-American, college-age African-American men. And that table right over there, white business dudes. What's your initial proclivity to where you're going to go sit? Now, I'm not saying, you sinful racist, but what I am telling you is that there is a proclivity in us to want to gravitate towards the things that we're like, the things that we understand, and to want to keep away from those who are different from us. But I'm telling you right now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is pulling people that are very different from us, all together, unified by Christ. And this is not colorblindness. People go, what we need is to be colorblind. No! Imagine how offensive that would feel to you as an African-American hearing people say that the way to get along is to be colorblind. No, this is how I was made. No, the, the way to be is to find ways to celebrate and understand the diversity that other people have, knowing that that's how God created them and that they're created in God's image and not be so prideful and fearful and protective of our own. That's the way it to be. That's going to be heaven. It's going to be amazing and beautiful. And the last one is this. We've got to hurry. The last one is this, um, that we're saved by faith. It's just the basics of the gospel. We're saved by faith. There is nothing we do that commends us to God. There is nothing about who we are that commends us to God, whether that be religious works or skin color. It is simply the grace and favor of God granted to all people of all nations that makes us Christians. So the issue of skin color doesn't even filter into the equation. So that's what the gospel has to say about it, and more. But that's what we, that's what we have for tonight. So what, do we, what does the church do about that? I mean, it's a worldview series. So the next time that you're sitting on your living room and a story comes up, and it's something like Ferguson that just happened, um, or, or some story of racial injustice happens, or, or the next time that even you find yourself up against your own proclivity towards fears or tendencies that you know aren't necessarily fair or accurate or right, what do you do? How should the church look at this? I have a few things. Number one is this. I think the church needs to get better at viewing all racial issues through a sense of humility, first and foremost. Like, we've got to get better at looking at racial issues through the lens of humility. And, and here's the reality of it. Most people who get fired up about and talk about issues of racial injustice, no matter which side of that fence you're on. So, so whether you're the guy crusading against racial injustice or whether you're the guy over here saying that racial injustices don't exist, one thing they tend to have in common a lot is a high degree of self-righteousness. 
a high degree of this is the way it is and this is the way they would be and if those people would just figure this out and understand it we wouldn't have these problems and this is what's right and I know everything and that tends to be the way most people approach those sorts of things um, but but that's not that's not the Christian in any issue much less racial injustice issue Christians are what we're to be humble Jesus says take my yoke upon you I am meek and lowly of spirit he's humble he says in Philippians have this mind let this mind be upon you the mind that was in Christ Jesus that he did not think himself above others he humbled himself the scriptures say he esteemed others as better than himself there was no looking down the nose I mean humility is an absolute basic core pillar foundational attribute for all believers that we should constantly be striving towards because it's a massive part of the character of our Savior and Lord if he wasn't humble we don't get saved you know that right if Jesus isn't humble we're in big trouble because instead think think about if Jesus had those same proclivities in heaven looking at our ridiculousness going if you guys would just figure it out you wouldn't have these problems the problem is you're selfish and you lived in you live these entitled lives you just want handouts all the time and you want people to do stuff for you all the time and you want to blame things on everyone else but you take no responsibility for yourself couldn't Jesus say that about every single one of us and yet he humbled himself came in the form of man and said Jeff's a mess he's a mess and even as he teaches, he would love, he wishes bad, he could say he doesn't ever have any sort of racial proclivities or any of those things, but he's a sinful human. He does. And so he needs my help. If Jesus isn't humble, we're in trouble. Amen? So the number one thing, we've got to look at this through humility. And what that means is this, guys. Um, let me word this carefully. Like, We've got to beware the tendency to look at a problem like Ferguson and believe we have all the understanding and all the answers. Um, and news wants to do that for us, but, but we've got to fight that. Because I'm telling you, you can talk to incredible people who are absolute heroes of the faith, ministering the gospel, who understand doctrine, and their conservative values might put other people's conservative values to shame, but they would tell you, hey, I'm on the ground in Ferguson. It is not as simple as the news wants to make you think. You've got people that have been born into systematic or systems where they've been raised in this. Like, from day one, they've never trusted a police officer, ever. I mean, many of them wouldn't even think to call the police if they were in trouble because their honest belief in so many places is that'll just make it worse. And so to see the things that go on in Ferguson and go, you're just breaking the law, it, it's not that simple. What we have to do is fight this belief that because here in Medford, Oregon, insulated from all this kind of stuff, that we have the ability to look at what goes on over there and understand it. I'll tell you, when I moved from, or or from North Carolina to Oregon, I didn't move away from racism. It's, I found it here too. It looks different. And I'll be honest with you, I hope this doesn't offend you, but this is the truth. It's more ignorant here. What I mean is this. In North Carolina, you'll have guys on the weekends telling black jokes and racist stuff and flying their rebel flags or whatever the case may be. But there's a huge population on both sides. And so Monday through Friday, they'll work side by side with these guys and talk with them and laugh and get along. In some ways, it's, it's just stupid and backwards, the ignorance that happens there. Because you know these guys. You know down in your heart. Like, you guys get along and then you would go and tell a black joke on the weekend. That's just foolish. But that's what happens. 
here because there just isn't, for example, a very predominant at all African-American population here. You have people who will make different snap judgments based on either television or things like that, but, but they are, and I mean this in all the genuine sense of the word, they're ignorant of any sort of interaction with people from some of these different races, and so they're making judgments having no personal experience with them at all. And, and so we have to understand, especially here and especially in black-white race issues, we're really insulated from a lot of these problems that exist in other parts of the world. So we gotta, we gotta stop and go fight the tendency that says if they would just obey the law, things would be better. And instead, I think we need to maybe follow the example of Christ who inserted himself into our condition. I think we need to try harder to understand what's going on, the things that they're dealing with. You guys know the story, you've heard maybe before of Martin Luther King, he wrote letters from a Birmingham jail. Have you heard that before, heard of that writing before? So I don't know if you know the story about that or not. Uh, Martin Luther King was in, in jail um, for a sit-in protest that they had done just a few days before. And while he was in prison, a group of seven local white pastors in the area there in Birmingham got together and wrote an open letter and had it printed in the Birmingham newspaper. And in it, it was telling Martin Luther King what he was doing was wrong and sinful and foolish and why can't you stop? You're encouraging people to break the law. This is foolish. You need to just knock it off and pray. God will take care of all your problems. It was really just saying, we have all the answers. If you would just do this, everything would be fine. And so from prison, when he heard about this, he wrote a response. By the way, this would be akin to you did something, someone else, because this has happened to all of you, I'm sure, someone else has an interpretation of it. They didn't even bother to talk to you. They just went on Facebook and wrote about you. Anybody been there? Just me? Okay. <laughs> yeah, last week for me. But actually, that, that really does happen. So this is open letters. Open letters are garbage. But this is what they did, right? If you're going to write an open letter, go to the person first. Closed letters are fine. But anyway, so he wrote back. And his letter back was letters from a Birmingham jail. And listen to what he responded to these group of pastors. Okay, well-meaning. I, I do think these guys' hearts was good. But, but here's what he said. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the amusement park that just opened, on television and see the tears well up in her eyes when she's told that fun town is closed to colored children and see the depressing cloud of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing bitterness toward white people when you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored when your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy however old you are and your last name becomes John. When your wife and your mother are never given the respect the title misses. When you're harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you're a Negro living at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you're forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then maybe you will understand why we find it so difficult to wait. I mean, we've got to take an opportunity, I think, when these kind of things come down and fight our own proclivity to have all the answers and say, I want to talk to this guy. 
I want to find out a little bit about their background. I want to understand what's going on in their life that might be causing some of these things to do. The church needs to be more humble in its approach to racial issues. Number two, we've got to hurry. The church needs to view racial issues through a sense of corporate responsibility. And people hate this. Corporate responsibility. Let me define that. Corporate responsibility means the collective group is responsible or bears some measure of responsibility no matter what. Now, there's different levels. Um, If you had the injustices of the past during slavery, you had, um, you know, politicians who were fighting to enact slavery laws who were completely different in terms of their blame than those who maybe lived in a city and they knew it was bad, but they weren't involved and they didn't want to be a part of it. I mean, there's different levels, but this idea of corporate injustice and the way it plays out to the negative is when people go, I don't understand why people, let's let's keep going with the African-American white issue. I don't understand why they're always talking about this kind of stuff. They weren't slaves. I didn't own any slaves. So why should I feel bad about this? Why can't they just move on and deal with this? You guys have heard some of those kind of things before. Maybe we've even felt some of those kind of things before. Odds are we probably have. Um, Biblically speaking, that doesn't hold up. In Daniel chapter 9, you have Daniel praying to God, repenting for the sins of his culture that were committed by a generation before him that he had nothing to do with. He's repenting and begging forgiveness. He's owning some measure of responsibility for being at least being a part of a culture where he might experience certain benefits because of the actions of his forefathers. So that would play out for us like this. No, the average white person here did not own slaves, I hope, growing up. No, we didn't own slaves. But we do. We absolutely do enjoy certain benefits that our culture experiences over our African-American brothers and sisters simply because of the way our culture was created and because of the systems that have been in place before us. So to just say that we're not involved in it whatsoever. I'm not saying we carry the same equal blame as a guy who was beating his slaves in the Civil War day. But we can't be so quick to just separate ourselves from the issues that are going on in the world around us right now. And you go, that's wrong, Jeff. I'm not... No, the Bible is really clear about corporate responsibility because doesn't Paul in Romans 5 say that we are all guilty of sin because of one man? Who? Adam. Because of the sin of Adam. All men are sinful. Not because you did anything, but because of who you're even born into. That's not fair. I know. And neither is the fact that the Bible also says we enjoy total forgiveness of sin. Not because of us, but corporately because of one person, Jesus Christ. So the issue of corporate responsibility is a biblical one. The gospel is not individualistic. It's corporate. It's for a people. It's for nations of peoples. And so for us to just want to insulate ourselves from the sins of our fathers while we live in cultures that still deal with the implications of maybe the sins of our fathers is wrong. We should just be honest about that. I think it's our pride that keeps us from wanting to do that because we don't want to accept blame for wrongs. We've got enough things we're absolutely responsible for. But this is true. The gospel is not individualistic. And whether we want to admit it or not, the average white male enjoys benefits that women don't, they do. Go, go read research about car prices. See what the average car prices and the differences are sold to white men versus white women, black men versus black. If you're a black woman, you're paying through the nose, honestly, compared to what the average white American male pays for a car. That's a benefit that some people enjoy that others don't. It's a systemic injustice. And we shouldn't be so quick to insulate ourselves and jump to, well, it wasn't our problem. Why are you so upset? 
I believe with all my heart that if we were in some of those cultural situations, we would understand a little better. Third, we need to look at these things through a lens of honest repentance. Racial injustice is not a they problem, it's a we problem. And every single one of us have elements of prejudicial proclivities inside us. We are drawn to people like us, and we are drawn away from people that are different from us. It makes us uncomfortable, and it's difficult. And that's understandable, it's part of our human nature, but it's not right. And it's certainly not an excuse. And I think every one of us at different times has found issues of racial prejudice welling up inside them, whether they were ever expressed or not. I think everyone's been through some of that, not because we're a bunch of jerks or because you're a bunch of rednecks or whatever the case may be, but because we are sinful humans that elevate ourselves above, of, above others. This is what we do. And so any approach to racial injustices in the world around us need to be done through the lens of repentance. Christians don't repent just when they get saved and then we're done. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. And I'm telling you, man, you go talk to somebody that's dealing with some of those things and you start your conversation with repentance and watch how much further you'll get in those discussions. Watch how soft your heart will be towards them in those discussions. It matters and it starts with us. Number four, um, we should look at racial issues through the lens of our new identity. Um, we need to remember we are no longer Jew nor Gentile. It says in Galatians chapter 3. Do you have that verse? Could you put that up on the slide? Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek since there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and no female. You are all one in who? Christ Jesus. So there's a gal that wrote a book called The New Jim Crow. Her name is Michelle Alexander, sociologist. And she was talking about some of these issues. And she talked about gangsta rap. And she was talking about what is it about certain cultures that they want to take that personification that you see in gangster rap music and that it's so attractive to them. What is it? And when she did a lot of the research, what she found out is that, and this is her quote, gangster rap culture is a way for stigmatized people desperately trying to do something about their low self-image, eventually giving up and embracing the identity that has been given to them by society as criminals. Another way, in other words of saying, they're, they're saying, Okay, if you want to treat me like a criminal, then I'll be the biggest criminal on the block. And so it's a play towards identity, and it leaves them hanging over and over and over because our identity doesn't come through these kinds of things. Our identity is to come through Christ. That's who it was designed for. And by the way, white people do it too. The rednecks that drive around the South with their the South will rise again bumper stickers and flags are doing the same thing. People around the country go, oh, those ignorant racists, and they'll embrace it because they're poor, sometimes ignorant. They're in the South. They don't feel represented in the same way. They still have inferiority complexes over a war that they had nothing to do with, and they're embracing an identity because everyone's looking for power and identity somewhere. Everyone is. So people do this all across the board. The gospel teaches us that we are sinful not because we're black or white or because of what our race is. We're sinful because we're part of the human race. But our identity is to be in Christ. And so we don't look at racial issues anymore as a white person looking at racial issues. We try to stand back and go, as the redeemed people of God, part of a diverse network of believers from all over the world and all over time, I see this issue going on. What do I think about it now? Not as a North Carolina country boy who listens to Travis Tritt, what do I think about this issue? 
or a black guy in Compton who listens to NWA. What do I think about this issue? That's, that's not the lens that we see anything through anymore. We, the old man is dead. We are a new creation. New. Amen? Amen. And the last one is this. I skipped some stuff. Just ignore that slide. <laughs> um, Number five is this, not as white or black, but as ministers of reconciliation. Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think the church should lead the way. It shouldn't be liberal institutions. It shouldn't be college institutions. It shouldn't be different. Uh, it shouldn't be parachurch organizations. The leaders in racial reconciliation and redefining the way we think about these things should be the church. Because God has pulled diverse people together and he says, and he's looking for, he's building for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous to do good works. It doesn't mean we're responsible for everything that goes out there, but what it does mean is we bring a new perspective to all those things, and we enter racial issues with humility and grace and point all of them to Jesus in the middle of all of it. The church is a city on a hill, and the idea is in whatever city battle that's going on, we still want people to point to Jesus. In Ferguson, they're fighting, and they don't realize it, but they're fighting because they need Jesus. In, in, in the attacks on black church in South Carolina, the guy who went in there with that gun and killed those people doesn't, maybe doesn't even realize it, but he's looking for Jesus, not fame. I mean, this is the role of the church. And so for us to understand what the gospel says about who we are in Christ, to be humble and, and approach issues of race that we see in the world around us with a little bit of a different view to understand maybe where they're coming from a little better, understand what God's forgiven us, know that we are sinners and we are just as, it is just as possible for us to take on racial attitudes as anyone else we're seeing out there, approach them through humility and then go, as the church, I've been given the responsibility to be a minister of reconciliation. If Jesus is reconciling people from all nations to himself, and then he says in Corinthians, you now have been given the ministry of reconciliation, then that's our job as the church is to go to people of all different nations and be part of what God is doing as he reconciles black people. Remember the song? I mean, it's considered racist now, which is unfortunate, but remember the song growing up? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. It's true. And we, even in Oregon, even in Southern Oregon, maybe even especially in Southern Oregon, I think it's our responsibility to look at these things differently and to understand that God loves the, the person that's rioting, the redneck in South Carolina, that whatever the case may be, God is calling people from all tribes, all nations, and all languages to himself. And this is the program he's given the church. Amen? Amen. Do we have any questions? What, which clock is right? They're both right. Sorry. What about mixed race families? Oh, though obviously not sinful, is it a good idea practically for a family? Doesn't that unfairly subject children to ridicule and racism that is not necessary? So, 
if a black person and a white person marry and they have a child, does that put that child in a, um, a difficult position because now they could get made fun of, called a mixed breed, things like that? Or I've heard it pr brought this other way too, so I don't know which one. Um, the, someone asked me this recently. I don't know which one they were talking about, but um, also white families that adopt black children, maybe in a culture such as Medford where you don't have a lot of African-American people, does that now put that child in a place that's unfair for them? No. I mean, well, yes, life is unfair. For everyone. But the, the, the Christian life is a countercultural movement by definition. And so we don't make any of our decisions for our children, no matter what they are, based on what's going to be easiest for them. Um, with, with adoption, I can't fathom saying, I don't want to adopt that starving black kid in Africa because people might call him a name in America. I can't fathom someone would make that trade off. So, so I will assume that. When that question comes up, we're talking about when a black person and a white person marry and they produce that child. Um, and, and I would just say, skin color doesn't enter into the equation. They're made in the image of God. And so obviously it's not a sinful issue to do that. Are you putting a child in a situation like that? I would say as, as a parent in this world today, raising a Christian child in general is putting that child in a position to, undo, un, to, to undergo and live through ridicule and difficulty because they're Christian. So um, what, what I think is those are teachable moments for children where you talk about the sin and wickedness of the world and about a God like Jesus that loves them so much no matter what they look like that he would actually give his life for that child. I think that's what you teach that child. And you try to teach the people around you the same thing in that world that you live in. Um, so that would be my answer to that. Um, someone had a hand up. Winston? I agree, absolutely. Do we have any others? Totally believe we are all equal to God, but just as much as I believe that Israel is a precious people to him, and so all Israel shall be saved. Romans 11 is about the Jews as the beloved. Um, okay, so I'm not, told, let me read this again. Totally believe that we're all equal to God, but just as much as I believe that Israel is a precious people to him, and so all Israel shall be saved, Romans 11 is about the Jews as the beloved. Um, could it be, is Romans 11 about the Jews as the beloved? I would say no. Uh, Romans 11, I believe, is talking about the covenant people of God. Um, and it's using the story of Israel as that. That is a long, we do not have time in five minutes or an hour to unpack that today. So that might be something that you get a hold of me and we have coffee and talk about. But, um, but I, would, I would say that that's not the case, no. Um, next we, by the way, we did a teaching on that. In, uh, in, if you go on the website, Romans 9, 10, 11, we talked about that stuff if you wanted to go back and check that out too. I think that pastor was on that week. It was good. <laughs> I'm joking. It's a joke. Um, the culture today is trying to put sexual discrimination on the same level. Ah, oh, this is good. Um, cultural, sexual discrimination on the same level as racial discrimination. Are they on the same level? No, because 
Um, there is nothing biblically um, that talks about God's design for black people as being different from white people. There's, there's no dis- discerning thing there. What it's saying is, is that God creates people in the image of God, the way that they are created. Um, when you're going into, this is such a tricky thing, and, and, and like the gay rights movement is winning because of this and will win because of this. Because the way our country is set up, they're, they're going to win. It's just true. Um, they're brilliantly framing this as, as a civil rights issue. Um, but there are some massive differences between that. Um, did we do the sexual, human sexuality one already? We did that already, did we? Yeah. Um, there's some big differences. Uh, I mean, first and foremost is sin. Um, the Bible's pretty clear about the design that God made for man and women when he created them, each one, in the image of God. The Bible says in, in Genesis that male and female created he them. So they were created in specific ways for specific functions that the Bible is very clear about in describing how those, those interact. Um, so I believe that they're completely different in terms of the biblical basis to say I'm justified to be black versus I'm justified to be gay. I think they're completely different. Now I'll say this though. I believe that the call to the church to love share the gospel with, come alongside, be kind, loving, and share Jesus with the homosexual person is just as clear as the same call to bring the same gospel to blacks, Mexicans, African Americans, uh, Asians, whatever the case may be. The call's the same, but the issues are, are different, yeah. Anything else? What do we do with scriptures used historically to support segregation and slavery? I would say study them. Um, because the scriptures that were used historically to support segregation and slavery uh, were taken completely out of context with no understanding of the reality of the Gospels. E- even the biblical definitions regarding slave were completely different from the American, this is what we used uh, before the Civil War. And, and you, you can see this historically because n- no one else in the early church ever interpreted the scriptures that way, ever. Everyone knew what that meant. There's a difference between slaves and bond servants and and all of those sorts of things. And even in that, God understanding the sinful proclivities of man put things into his law that says, okay, if someone becomes a slave to you because they're indebted to you and can't pay it back, so they become your slave for seven years to pay back a debt they owed you, at the end of seven years, you've got to free their debt and let them go. Because God understands the sinful proclivities of people. And Israel never did that. The, the idea, look up the idea of the year of Jubilee and all these things that, that Israel, even in their sinfulness, never did. But the, the Bible verses used to support segregation are horribly out of context, completely removed from the gospel, and have no understanding of what any of that stuff was done. They're, and, and I say this even respectfully, they're ignorant. The way they were used was ignorant, without understanding. Yes, next. That's it? Oh, easy. Okay. Um, so that's it. So um, pray this stuff through. I, I'm, I'm, this is the kind of thing, it'd really be really easy to go, there's your worldview teaching, you're done. But remember, the life of the Christian is one of continual growth, sanctification, getting more and more like Jesus. And watch. Like we, we can talk about this stuff tonight and all nod and agree and go, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right. But you monitor your heart and watch how easy things slip back in. Don't walk out of here guilty of the same kind of pride going, yeah, we're not, we don't have any of that stuff. We got it all figured out. Watch your heart. Because it it's, may not be racism, but there's, there's sexism, 
there's racism, there's classism, there's economic issues. We as individuals, because we are sinful people, want to elevate ourselves above others and all those are wicked and sinful tendencies. May we continue to grow more and more like Christ so that instead of elevating self, we're humbling ourselves before others and allowing God to do the exaltation, right? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the reminders of your word. I thank you for the freedom that comes with your word. I thank you for how you expose sin in your word. And Lord, th this is an issue that is so deeply ingrained in so many people that it can be difficult to work out. But I thank you, Lord, that your word is, is that double-edged sword that divides hearts, divides wills, and, and can figure out and expose to us areas of sin in our own life. So God, in this issue, see if there be any wicked way in me. Are there people that we are looking down upon? Are there people we're marginalizing instead of sharing the gospel with? Are we guilty of these same sorts of tendencies? God, I pray that we would not find our identity in our race, in our money, in our job, in our education, in our location, any of those things. May we constantly find our identity in your gospel that reminds us that we, Lord, are sinful, broken, fallen people. And if it wasn't for you and your incredible grace, we would be lost. And Lord, may we carry that truth to the world around us. May we see the world differently. May we raise our children differently. And I pray, God, that at least for this church, I, Lord, I pray, and you know I've prayed this to you so many times. I pray, Lord, that you would create a microcosm of your kingdom here. I pray that Heritage would more and more and more become the kind of church where people of all races feel comfortable, accepted, loved, welcomed, where they hear the gospel, where we can not be colorblind and ignore differences, but celebrate what you've done because you've done all things well. You are a master creator and the diversity of creation is beautiful, but may we find unity under your gospel. So God, if there's areas as a church that we need to adjust, if there's people we're not inviting, whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray that our church would more and more be a better representation of the kingdom of God to the world around us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just do that at our church. Um, but Lord, in this valley, I pray you would give each and every one of us opportunities to share your gospel with those that aren't like us. And no matter what, Lord, protect our hearts from our sinful pride. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, men. There's a men's retreat coming up, not this weekend, but next weekend. We still got some openings available. Um, get signed up for that. You can do it at the info table or online. We'll see you guys Sunday. God bless. Love you.